0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Trustee Table, a new podcast series from NAIS that provides insights and information for trustees, board chairs, and school administrators on critical governance and leadership issues. I'm Anne-Marie Balzano, Director of Governance and Leadership, and today I'll be speaking with Deborah Wilson. Many of you may already know Deborah as our fabulous NAIS General Counsel over the last 19 years. Her contributions to the independent school world are innumerable. She's an authority on legal issues related to independent schools, writes advisories, offers general legal information for schools, presents to school leaders around the country, coordinates amicus briefs on cases of industry importance, and refers schools to counsel as needed. In her role at NIS... She directs the organization's government relations work, reviews and analyzes federal regulations and legislation, tracks legal trends, and coordinates independent school advocacy at the federal level. Deborah will leave NAIS this spring to serve as the next president of SAIS and was recently awarded the NBOA Sarah Daynow Outstanding Support of Independent Schools Award. Deborah, thank you for taking a seat at the table today.
1: Thank you so much, Anne Marie. I appreciate being here. Well, I have watched
0: you present at a number of NAIS conferences and institutes, and you are always fielding legal questions sort of across the board. So as a new trustee, what are some of the basics that folks need to worry about from a legal standpoint?
1: So that's a very common question that I tend to get from new trustees, particularly when um, schools are doing orientation or they're doing their retreat in August. Most trustees are very familiar with, um, you know, their three duties of care. But for me, those boil down to three, you know, pretty distinct issues that new trustees really have to be careful about. Um, The first are conflicts of interest, you know, which most people I think have a pretty good handle on. If you have, you know, some kind of interest that comes into play that might make your uh, participation in a school decision, you know, whether by voting or conversation, uh, sort of suspect, um, you know, if the overall school community would find it unusual um, or, you know, a little suspicious if you were involved in something, chances are pretty good you have a conflict of interest. Most schools tend to have a conflict of interest policy so that you can disclose those to the executive committee of the board just so that they're aware of a conflict of interest. It doesn't necessarily keep a trustee out of, you know, out of being on the board or, you know, from participating in other board activities, but it's just sort of one of those, you know, items that you watch pretty closely. Uh, A good example of that, you know, we see it, um, you know, boards will recruit particular members for skills, right? Right. So if you're doing a construction project, you might have attorneys who can help you secure bond funding or something like that, or refinance, or um, architects if you're, you know, building something new. If those individuals are somehow providing services to the school, you know, it becomes a question of are they removed enough? to provide those services and anything they charge the school are those reasonable. So, you know, those are, those are things that you should really watch out for and just be smart about how you manage them and make sure they're disclosed to the school and that you take steps to, you know, remove yourself from anything that would create not just an actual conflict of interest, but a perceived one in the community.
0: Right. And that's really critical is that community perception, um, particularly since the board is usually in the spotlight when it comes to those sorts of, Issues.
1: Exactly. If you, if you wouldn't want it on the front page of the paper and you couldn't explain it in like a couple bullets, you know, reasonably readily, it's not really something you want to engage in. Um, the other one where schools tend to have the, the most issues are around confidentiality, and mm-hmm. I encourage schools to have a confidentiality policy, just like they have a conflict of interest policy, because, um, you know, particularly when sensitive issues come up, whether it's an employment matter, it could be a student sexual abuse issue that has arisen, all of those kinds of things are so incredibly important for boards to be able to trust and respect the confidentiality of the boardroom,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, particularly like I said, you know when it's a it's a sort of a high profile issue like that that it's incredibly important for the school to be speaking with one voice um, you know the that confidentiality piece. And this includes spouses, and friends, and teachers, and kids, and all of those things. And that confidentiality of the boardroom really needs to be sacrosanct. And finally, the last one for me is your overall ap- approach to the board. Um, you know, you really cannot be asleep at the switch. Uh, mm-hmm. So where board members can run into issues are, you know, they're frankly, they're just not not paying as close attention as they might to, you know, whether it's the school's financials, um, being aware of major initiatives the school has going on, major concerns or obstacles that have come up. You know, board members really need to be prepared for board meetings, being staying on top of the budget and what they're being told by the school's leadership team or the board's executive committee, because those sort of seemingly little things can snowball into big things. Mm -hmm. And if the, the board is not really, fully engaged um, in really tracking what is happening, you know, little problems become big problems. You know, it's almost like skipping those annual dentist visits or something like that and those those little things that bother you can can, you know, turn turn into a a, a very big, very expensive problem in a pretty short period of time. So, you know, for me conflicts of interest, confidentiality and just, just really being aware and really tracking what's happening with the school are. are you know those are those are sort sure of the three big issues that that new trustees really need to to be aware of as they're entering board service.
0: I appreciate you sort of outlining those in those three different buckets. And you said that sometimes something that seems pretty innocuous can turn into, A big problem really fast and I know we have a a running joke that we should put a big red phone in your office so people can call the the Deborah hotline when they've got a legal issue so as a new trustee or board chair what are some of the most common legal issues that independent school boards face today that you've seen
1: yeah you know that's um, I always wish I had a crystal ball to tell you sort of what's coming up five years from now but at least right now um, schools are really they're still tracking very carefully student abuse concerns, particularly older sexual abuse claims from alumni. And, you know, and these might even be outside of the statute of limitations, but, you know, when alums come back and they disclose to the school that something happened when they were a student, so they might have been abused by a, a teacher, they might have, you know, been new alumni, we've had a couple of these come up where they've been um, sexually assaulted by a teacher after they've graduated, pretty soon after they've graduated, and they're, they're really difficult scenarios to to hear and for a school to manage um, and um, but that's that's probably the number one thing schools are really looking at and NES has a lot of resources we've developed to help schools with that issue i'd say the second one are peer to peer sexual assault claims um, and these are coming up right now so the the student sexual abuse ones, you know, occasionally something will come up that's a current case, but most of those tend to be historic cases from the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. Mm-hmm. But the peer-to-peer sexual assaults are, um, they're much more common right now, uh, particularly among high school students, and a lot of times it's off-campus activity. And we have resources on this now, but it's, it's important from a trustee standpoint, to understand that those can happen as young, you know, we see them even into elementary schools. So mm-hmm. it's not just the high schools, but elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. And, um, you know, for schools to have good protocols around that. We also were looking pretty closely at travel with students. There was a pretty big claim against one of our schools. It was an almost $42 million verdict against the school for an injury a student had um, when she took a trip to China. So a lot of schools have been sharpening their protocols around international travel in particular, but all of those same principles apply domestically, particularly on overnight trips. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, finally, um, employment-related issues have been growing, particularly as our workforce has been aging, so we see more age discrimination claims, um, more disability related claims. that's pretty consistent across all employers now, but our schools are definitely seeing see this too, particularly with a fully aging workforce. So for me, those are probably our top four right now, so student sexual abuse, peer to peer sexual assault. That travel with students, particularly those overnight type trips and then those employment related issues. So if I had to pick a top four, I'd say those are probably them. Yeah,
0: those those are pretty incredibly significant. And and as I'm thinking about those um, from the school standpoint, my first instinct is to go, well, then how would I minimize the risk for those kinds of things. And I know that you often feel those kinds of questions around risk management. So in your opinion, what are some effective first steps when evaluating risk at a school?
1: you know, a lot of these issues that, that cause a crisis and, you know, we've gotten pretty good at managing a crisis, but that's really no way to live. And so, we've done a lot of work with United Educators. Um, United Educators is an insurance company that works just with educational institutions. Um, looking specifically at risk management, um, they've done a lot of work with higher education and they've done more and more work with independent schools. But the trick has been to say, okay, what is, a, what is a functional process for risk management in independent schools? Because we're obviously a lot smaller than higher education, and mm-hmm. higher ed delved into this a few years ago, kind of hook, line, and sinker. So when, when independent schools are looking at this, you know, we can start from, you know, the push can come from the board, it can come from the administrative team. But but either way for the school to start a, a process just to get a handle on their risks, to kind of give themselves permission to create a process to identify the risks that the school is facing, and then to start, you know, kind of biting off what you can chew every year. So it could be three to five risks. From a board standpoint, I really like it when the administrative team is driving this more, and the board tends to have... They might be involved in some of the bigger picture risks, so if it's a big strategy question, say, around enrollment management or long-term financial sustainability, but other types of risks, like we were just talking about, so say um, peer-to-peer sexual assault, the board has just more of a Sort of a receiving of reports from the administration about how the administration is thinking about it and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's so that, you know, so the board might be directly involved in addressing risks or they could just be receiving reports from it. Um, but either way that there's a, a process to start identifying the major risks addressing those risks, managing them, mitigating them, and to keep that process going so that it's, um, you know, it's got sort of long-term sustainability within the culture of the school. Uh, As a board member, you should know this is hard for schools to do. Sometimes the the, the day-to-day of running a school can be so involved that that big picture of risk management is a little more complex than it is in sort of traditional corporate environments, but more schools are moving in this direction. So as a board member, particularly if you're really familiar with risk management, you're going to have to sort of use a little bit of patience, but, you know, work with the school and and having that process and, you know, and, and playing, play the right, you know, sort of helpful role as a board member in that risk management process. It's, um, it's one place where boards can be a little overly involved in the school uh, because it, it invites the board more into that operation picture, but the board should still be mostly involved in that those strategic risks as opposed to those more operational ones.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense because um, it would be easy to just to go down that rabbit hole, like you were saying, and, and just be so worried about every little risk that's ha- that could happen to the school or, or might bring around, you know, some legal issues. But that sort of forward thinking, strategic thinking approach seems like, you know, that would be the most effective way to, to go about looking at this issue.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, you know, it's it's one of those places where the board members have to sort of remember what their board head is while also mm-hmm. keeping an eye on those fiduciary obligations so that, you know, they know there's a risk management process they understand how it works, but not jumping in with both feet, you know, right. too deep into that risk management landscape.
0: So in your opinion, how often should the board review or revise its bylaws? And what's a good process for doing so? Because I know that's an, an issue for lots of trustees.
1: You know, it it is. And it's, um, you know, the, the the board is sort of, you know, it's the keeper of the mission, the vision, and that the bylaws are sort of your corporate constitution, right, of a nonprofit. Um for me, it's, it's ideal when a school, you know, it has an attorney that's actually looking out for the school because bylaws, you know, they're how your school runs, but they're also based on the state code, the state corporate code for the most part. And most most states have a nonprofit code too. So your your bylaws have to be in compliance there. So you wanna have an attorney that's kind of just always keeping an ear out for those kinds of changes so that they can alert you to any mandatory changes you have to make. Mm-hmm. But then otherwise You know, as a board, you want to make sure you're actually following your bylaws that would seem like master of the obvious, but sometimes boards get so far away from the bylaws, you know, whether it's on uh, Term limits or how officers are elected or if you have parent members or things like that, but you know, so for for boards really saying, okay, are we following our boor- bylaws? And if we're not, why aren't we following our bylaws? Because sometimes they just get outdated and nobody ever updates them. Mm-hmm. But it's important to follow them. So if you you find that you're deviating from them a lot, or you're using your supermajority to work around them, that's a sign that it's really time to update your bylaws. That that whatever the the systems or the processes that were created in the bylaws, they're they're not working for your school at the time, and that's really it's okay to update them, but it's not okay to constantly be out of sync with them. So that's sort of, you know, one sign that you, you really need to update them. And then for me, a full review about every three to four years, just to make sure that everything is working the way that it should, I think is really helpful. Um, you never want to set your attorney just loose on any document. So, you know, so if you find, look, we're a little bit out of sync here, That's fine, start, you know, kind of writing notes and kind of redlining and teeing up sort of what other processes might work for you. So if you're, you know, if you find that your term limits are too short um, or you don't have, you, you know, trustees don't have enough terms on the board for you to maintain institutional memory what other mechanisms might you like to see in there that will help you maintain institutional memory while being sure that the board is refreshing pretty regularly. So you can make those suggestions to your attorney and then meet with them so that they have sort of a list of specific issues you want them to address rather than just, you know, a friend of mine calls it the leaky faucet problem. You never <laughs> want to set an attorney loose on the leaky faucet because they bill you in six minute increments. So, you, you know, that's, um, you know, sort of that's, that's how you want to go about it. And that full review, the attorney generally, they're just going to be looking from their vantage point at a compliance issue. So, you know, ideally you have the attorneys thinking about compliance regularly for you if you find you're out of sync with your bylaws or you want to do some updates that makes the way you run your board more efficient or more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that full review every three years, it's just sort of a good time to do a gut check to say, okay, are we, are we there? There's no hard and fast rule on that three years. It could be three years. It could be four years. Some schools every, do it every five years, but you just want to make sure that it's on that that schedule for review, you know, so that somebody's really thinking about it and looking at it every few years.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about trustees just being sort of ear to the ground a lot. And and this comes in even the, in the boardroom, right? And having your ear to the ground, even with bylaws, because, you know, it is a, a form of, I would say, it's almost like reflective practice, like is what we're doing, working? Are we serving our school effectively? And I think, uh, you know, looking at the bylaws, not just, you know, like you said, every three to five years, but also, you know, just being aware during the year, if things seem out of sync, that might be a good indication for us to, to dig a little deeper.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And what I also find, too, there's a little difference of opinion, I think, as attorneys look at bylaws. You know, some people love to have really detailed bylaws. My personal feeling is those are a little bit harder to comply with because you're just not, it, it's harder for a sort of a nonprofit volunteer board to comply with something that's very complex. For me, I'm a less is more bylaws person, but some attorneys like a lot more detail in there. And, you know, in schools over time, their culture might shift. And that's really okay, as long as you're you're keeping those bylaws up to date to reflect where where your board is and and what good practice looks like. Mm -hmm, Exactly.
0: So what should the board know or be thinking about when it comes to the head's contract and compensation?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. As you know, the board only has one um, employee, the head of school, one direct employee, the head of school. And um, you know there are a couple of key things you should know about a heads contract and compensation. First, um, because all of our independent schools are nonprofits, the compensation for the head of school must be reasonable. And it's like the IRS definition of reasonable. There's a sort of specific regulatory structure called intermediate sanctions. And it's basically designed to ensure that nonprofits keep the compensation um, for, you know, the heads of nonprofit organizations and other key employees at a reasonable level. Mm -hmm. And so um, they've created this thing called rebuttable presumptions, which to me is a confusing term in itself, but it's basically saying, you know, if um, compensation, if the board has taken the steps to, to really look at comparison data, so like schools, you know, geographically similar type locations, same size, budget, that kind of thing. If the compensation, you know, is similar among those schools, you know, if the board has done that that due diligence to make sure that the compensation's reasonable, the IRS might might say, Hey, have you gone through this due diligence process? And if the board can come back and say, you know, yes, the, the IRS is, is generally gonna leave it at that. Mm-hmm. There's, we have resources on this. Um, there's a, a little process to go through just to pull that you know comparison data together or to work with a consultant to come up with that comparison data. And then the whole board is supposed to vote on that compensation. So this is a big big piece for the, from the IRS's standpoint that all of the board members of the nonprofit should know the compensation of the head of school. Some schools do this, some schools don't. Ideally, that's what the IRS is looking for, that the board has actually voted on that unless there's a conflict of interest in play. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of the first piece from the compensation standpoint. On the contracts front, um, when you're getting into a new contract with a head of school or you're renegotiating, the the really key terms um, that you wanna look at are the, the the clauses that allow you to let a head of school go. There's usually a, a for cause um, piece. And then there's a not for cause piece. So for cause, if you're letting somebody go is pretty obvious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, a lot of times it might be, are they embezzling something? Has something truly terrible happened? They've been, you know, grossly negligent in their duties. The other one is more of a not for cause. And it's, um, it's kind of a fallback so that if it's not very clear, you're letting somebody go for cause, but for whatever reason, that relationship isn't working out that's something that the board can use to sever that uh, agreement, sever that arrangement. Both of those usually have a payout piece because the head search process goes, it's in such an unusual cycle relative to other businesses and it's important for board members to understand that. So the head searches um, go, tend tend to run from, you know, say spring, of a whole year in advance of when that head would start. So they've gotta be part of that cycle and they tend to end getting into frankly, December, January at the latest. So if you fire a head in June or May, they won't be able to necessarily start another headship job until the following July 1. So those not for cause um, termination provisions, Mm-hmm. can have a year or more of a payout for a head of school. So it's really important for boards to track that and understand it. And then the other pieces are, when does the contract renew? When do those ne- negotiations happen? Um, and what are the expectations when a head starts looking for a new job? Like how do they notify the board that they might be interviewing for a new place? And that process, that head's looking for a new job, is it's pretty standard. Most heads tend to stay in schools about seven to ten years, roughly, and mm-hmm. so you do actually need a kind of a, a good civilized way to have that conversation. It doesn't necessarily mean the head doesn't like your school anymore, they're just ready for a new challenge. So those are some of the key components um, within that contract that, that boards just need to be aware of, need to know how they work, and what those um, parameters look like. Mm-hmm. It's funny because you
0: know, I often think about succession planning for board chairs, but boards really need to be thinking about succession planning for the head of school as well.
1: Yeah. And that, I, you know, what we've seen, we've seen a, a sort of a lot of movement in the head's market and that ability for a, a board to know, you know, who, who within the school could step in for an interim year, um, you know, if, if a head is leaving and the school doesn't feel like it has time to really engage in a good you know, thorough in-depth search, Um, you know, who who within the school, you know, whether it's a dean of students or a head of one of the divisions of the school could step in and be an interim for the year if the board wants to go that way. That kind of succession planning, you know, it's not written in the head's contract, but I think it's really helpful for boards to know, you know, what what would that look like if, you know, the head were were just out of the picture pretty quickly for whatever reason, Um, you know, who within the school could step into that place.
0: That's a really important point. I just can't thank you enough for taking the time today to speak with us. And also, I just want to thank you for all of your service to to NIS as an organization, but to all of our our member schools. You're going to leave a huge gap um, in our organization, but SAIS is incredibly blessed to have you on board. Someone of your caliber is just going to do amazing things in the future. So I feel really lucky that I got to talk to you today and feel really lucky that we're going to get to keep working together in the future. Excellent. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed on the NAIS website, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thanks again for listening.